This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, Richard Osmond on his latest poetry collection, Rock, Paper, Scissors. Richard Osmond works as a wild food forager, searching for plants, fruits and fungi among the forests and hedgerows of Hertfordshire. He received an Eric Gregory Award from the Society of Authors in 2017. His first collection of poetry, Useful Verses, was shortlisted for a Costa Book Award and won the Seamus Heaney Centre's first collection poetry prize in 2018. And today we're going to be talking about Richard's latest collection, Rock, Paper, Scissors. Richard, welcome to Little Atoms. Thanks for having me. Um, So... You've written a poetry book about a stag night you went on. Yeah, it wasn't exactly the stag night that I thought it was going to be, in retrospect, but it was very memorable nonetheless. We were pretty thoroughly into a night of drinking when we found ourselves in the London Bridge area, and this was June 3rd, 2017, and then a terrorist attack started happening around us. And also the the police response was very much happening, sort of mustered around the position we were in. So we saw a lot of kind of almost behind the scenes of both the chaos and the organization of what went into experiencing and dealing with that event. Um well I want to talk a little bit about how that night unfolded, but could I get you to read the title poem? Yeah, sure. Before we carry on, which isn't the first poem in the collection, but it is the one that sort of really gets into the detail of what happened and why you were there. Mm-hmm. Rock, paper, scissors. Eight hours into Rob's stag, which had started strong with a pub crawl up the Bermondsey beer mile and was now beginning to sag at a Weatherspoons near Tower Bridge, a match of rock, paper, scissors was breaking out to pick between the following two options for what would happen next. One, we go to Katzenjammer's authentic German beer keller under London Bridge, where we would listen to an umpa band, eat sauerkraut, drink liter steins of Paulana Dunkel, and be held in the basement by police for our own protection as terrorists attack the door outside, see bloody victims hurry down the stairs to shelter in the bar, watch paramedics treat slash wounds to the throat and stab wounds to the stomach and slash and stab wounds to the throat and stomach, and hear a woman sob and hyperventilate because of what she couldn't bring herself to tell us she had seen up on street level, and take cover under the traditional wooden benches when armed officers burst in with automatic weapons yelling, Down! Get down! Get down! Or two, we go to a strip club. The game began. Emmett and Matt competing. So it's one, two, three, go, and play on go. One, two, three, go. Both guys threw down scissors first. One, two, three, go. Both changed tack dramatically and went for paper. All bets were off. One, two, three, go. They cast their final shapes. Emmett for the beer bar stuck fatefully with paper, while Matt, solidly in favour of the strip club, chose rock and lost. The decision had been made, and I dwell on it for bathos mainly, and because the world is made of games of rock, paper, scissors like this one. Not only in the sense that every flip or arbitrary choice has disproportionately huge and permanent results, 
but in the sense that every gesture, either of victory or defeat, aggression or surrender, depends for its meaning on another. Put it this way, a photograph of Matt's third and losing move viewed in isolation appears to show a man raising his fist in anger about to throw a punch. Only those who know which game of signs he's playing at will read the hand as rock, and even rock means nothing without further context. In rock, paper, scissors, rock is capable of meaning strength, or weakness, or indifference, depending on the sign selected to contest it. We called an Uber to take us to London Bridge. So, this book is your response to those attacks, how you dealt with it, just, you know, various ideas around it. Um, and that's what we're going to be talking about today. You know, I don't want to dwell too long on, on that actual night, but we'll talk about it for a minute. So, like, tell us something about how it unfolded for you guys in that bar. I think what comes back time and time again in the book is that there was never really a moment when we fully knew what was going on and so every experience is more about sort of like finding yourself to be incorrect about what you thought was happening and it constantly shifting until by the time you figure out what's happened you've already been kind of swept out and the experience is over like kind of the first thing time we knew something was wrong we could see the bouncers in the bar sort of walking up and down the stairs looking as if something was going wrong and then kind of whispering to the people running the pub. And the first thing I heard was the the bar manager saying, get all the cash out of the tills and take it into the back room. And so... Priorities. Yeah, well, I mean, as a... So my, my immediate assumption, I reassured everyone as well because I'm a, a pub owner myself. I thought they're doing something dodgy with the licensing and they're not supposed to be open and someone's about to come and catch them at it so they don't want to be seen to be taking money or something. But I don't know, I guess it was just because they knew that all hell was going to break loose and they thought get the get the tills out of the equation, which makes sense. Then w there was a sort of a, a trickle of first you get more and more kind of security-looking people and police coming down the stairs and then they, it looked like they were... Because it's an underground bar, they were using it as a kind of almost like an air raid shelter or something. They were sending injured people down into the bar. And they, yeah, it's like every few minutes you'd get someone who was sort of trying to staunch the bleeding coming down. And then they were sort of taking more of the space over. I think I think some paramedics showed up and they were kind of making up an area to to look after those people. And then we were kind of edging away from there to give everyone more space. And then suddenly the police came in and sort of ordered us to the ground. And they were, that was a bit confusing as well because a lot of the police weren't in uniform, but they were holding automatic assault rifles. So you have no idea what's going on at that point. And the fact that you, you know, you're told to lie down and you do it. It's not because you, you feel safe or you feel like you should, do it because you trust this person you just do it because there's a gun and a lot of very sort of striking and dramatic things happening which didn't get fully explained till afterwards but also kind of because you know when you see things involving guns and violence on tv that's in a work of drama where 
people have already gone through and decided what the significance is of the the drama that they're depicting and so they've taken the sort of the loudness and violence and attached it onto a solid meaning that they're trying to communicate whereas we were experiencing a kind of we had the loudness and the dramatic qualities without it having been made sense for us which i guess is what all kind of tragedies like this are like and of course you you know you've been having a really great day up until that point and yeah. you're all drunk yeah it, it sobers you up quite quickly <laughs> but um yeah that that's something that especially in like such a, a cliched type of drunkenness as a stag night you realize that you're kind of you're playing a game with certain social rules and then you you're suddenly put into like a very different game that has quite dangerous rules that you've never played before probably and that's kind of how how the book spins out into thinking about other sort of broader themes regarding society and how we communicate and how we relay news and how we how we worship and how we communicate and this idea that there are sort of there are all these different languages and all these different codes that are clashing quite dangerously and confusingly at all times but especially in an instant like this and indeed there's a a poem later on as you said when this was going on it's difficult to actually know what and why is happening but once it was over you start to get bombarded with headlines basically and Mm -hmm. bullet points and tweets i guess about what it is and you, you you know you use that to sort of build another poem later on yeah in writing about something that my last book was a lot about plants and medieval folklore and stuff and although i related that to the modern world as well this was a a bit different because i felt like i had to be engaging with a modern world that speaks a very different language from what i speak in poetry or in my everyday and so that poem that is kind of stitched together with tweets and google and bbc news headlines and stuff is trying to represent that kind of flood of often conflicting information for it and kind of make a joke of it but also make it kind of scary and kind of because it's that poem is not about the the june 3rd incident it's about the the oxford street black friday incident mm-hmm. where nothing actually happened but everyone everyone there basically had the ex- the same experience i did because i didn't see anyone physically getting stabbed or getting run over or getting shot but the the kind of crowd hysteria was the most dramatic and memorable part of that and that is something which is completely independent of anything actually happening to start it and so it's this kind of it's again some idea about society and culture that i'm scratching at but i haven't quite decided what i think about it it's that there are a lot of things that are kind of constructed and the way we're constructing them at the moment and the way different people's constructions kind of come up against each other is the less you realise they're a construction, the more dangerous it is. And of course, you were witnessing a, a real terrorist attack rather than one, rather than one concocted in the recording artist Oli Murs's head. <laughs> but I don't know what... Because he, he literally said, I, I heard gunshots. So what did he hear? Do you think like a car backfire on Oxford Street? Door slamming or something. Or someone else saying, "I heard gunshots," mm-hmm. and then he thought, 
if I'm going to tweet this, it needs to be I need more to, dramatic. Yeah, I need to be the one who directly heard it because otherwise it's like, you know, urban legend. You always claim to be one step closer to the person mm-hmm. who told the story than you were. Well, you've just mentioned, you know, the need to represent the modern world and mm-hmm. modern aspects of the world in this book, which is an interesting point for us to turn to the fact that as well as being your own poetry in this book, it contains, first of all, translations of Beowulf, and it also contains translations of the Quran. Um, I want to talk about why you took that approach. Um the idea of having a book that was a kind of collage felt quite important because it showed at the time I was writing it there were there were a lot of sort of dangerous populist politics and lies were becoming very common from a lot of sides and the idea of sort of one stable person's voice telling you things even that something as simple as that seemed quite quite dangerous and so I wanted I wanted to do something which was was complex and kind of multi-vocal and allowed me not to commit to having any kind of belief or argument because I don't think I... I didn't write the book with any intention of you know, putting a particular view across or finding an answer to any of the problems I mentioned. But it just gave me a, a way of kind of explaining some of the chaos and being able to explore some of the ironies and contradictions and some of the odd similarities between very disparate texts and i chose the ones i did because well the beowulf one the the passage i particularly focus on in beowulf is where grendel runs into the beer hall and starts killing people who have just been up drinking all night basically and as a a student in university studying that that um, passage you end up reading a lot of criticism and writing a lot of essays where they talk about how the you know the the old english poetry was revering a kind of mercenary tribe based political system where one guy builds a nice hall and then you all sit there being loyal to him because he gives you treasure and gives you you know that protection and comfort and it's kind of it's revering the, those kind of values which go along with sitting around in a hall and drinking. And so the, I don't know, if there's anywhere close to that, then the London Bridge area is quite a, an example of that kind of culture still alive today that, you know, Friday and Saturday night, it, you still get that idea that particularly masculine culture is revolving around the exchange of ales and beers and the fact that, the new kind of terrorist attacks seemed to be just getting the most vicious weapon you could and like running in to the the pub where that culture was kind of celebrating itself and indiscriminately trying to harm as much as possible was it basically exactly the plot of Beowulf. Well, I want to I want to get you to read. <laughs> Particularly one of the uh, the the Grendel attacking the beer hall translation parts of Beowulf in a minute. But before we do that, even more to bridge those two themes, could I get you to read your own poem, Osama bin Grendel? Please? Yes, Osama bin Grendel. 
Long before the terrorists at London Bridge adopted the dread troll Grendel's modus operandi, bursting by night into beer halls where mankind sat drinking ale and slashing throats, I jotted the beginnings of a joke in the back of my Anglo-Saxon textbook. Reasons why Grendel from Beowulf and Osama bin Laden are secretly the same person. Stuff like, both were resentful outsiders who attacked a social order founded on and fortified by the exchange of riches. Both of their attacks were focused on a large building, which was at once a symbolic focal point of this social order and the actual location where the riches were exchanged. Both of them hid in a cave. And you never see the two of them in the same room together, do you? When reading this aloud and no one laughs, I tell myself that the clearing of throats and the sound of chair legs scraping on the floor can actually be said to amplify the poem's deliberately uncomfortable and dissonant effects. I'll get you to read one of the um, Grendel attacking the, the bear hole sections there, if you could read Sick Flame for us. Sick Flame. The evil one advanced angrily over the beer hall's flagstone floor, his eyes fixed, and in them a sick flame flickered on a band of men sleeping there together, and his heart leapt at the thought of tearing each man life from limb, and his heart leapt at the thought of severing each man's soul from his body one by one. He foresaw for himself a feast of human meat that night, and he was right, but fate had it that the feast would be his last. The beast didn't delay. He took the first opportunity to seize, slash, and slay a sleeping man. He bit into the sinews which bound his bones together. He drank the blood and gulped down great gobs of flesh. Soon he had swallowed the whole dead man even his feet and hands. Listed to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Richard Osman, and we're talking about his latest collection of poetry, Rock, Paper, Scissors. Richard, I just want to just stay on the um, Beowulf and Grendel parts for a moment because later on in the book, where at the back of the book there's, there's notes talking about why you've selected some of the, the pieces and talking about the, the translations and the you know the methods you've used in the translations. But particularly I wanted to talk about how there's aspects of the story where Beowulf and Grendel, it's difficult to tell them apart when they're fighting. Yeah, this is something that always gets commented on in like the Beowulf exam at the end of the, the old English course at university. There's a there's particularly it happens in other ways as well, but the main one people always talk about is there's a word Aglaka, which means both dread warrior and ferocious beast kind of thing and so it gets applied both to to grendel who is this sort of swamp dwelling weird kind of ill-described shape that comes out of the fog and kills and also beowulf who is this 
fighting prince and champion swimmer and defeater of sea dragons and stuff. And so you get this sense that there's, especially along with what I was saying about the the kind of tribal communities and that the the warrior tribes solidified by drinking and fighting and hoarding treasure, there's a fine line between the honor of that lifestyle and the kind of monstrousness of it. And so when you get you get Beowulf fighting with all his strength and then he gets called and Aglaka and it kind of implies that, you know, you see a flash of the beast on his face at that moment. And similarly when Grendel has that word used on him, it's almost like he's kind of uh, a thane for just a coincidence or something that has made him get shut out of the society and if it wasn't for the bad luck of the curse that he carries or whatever it is that has set him as this monstrous person that maybe he would be just another member of the hall and so it it all comes to a head when there's there's a big fight scene at the end uh well not at the end at the end of the kind of grendel episode where beowulf and grendel get into a sort of like an arm lock kind of thing and they're fighting and spinning around it's kind of described like you know when a looney tunes character goes into a fight with another character and they kind of it turns into a hurricane with just arms and legs sticking out you kind of lose personal identity there and along with that in the descriptions of the two characters they get described very similarly but also even the grammar of the piece they use a lot of kind of parallel clauses and you know they'll name a body part or something and you you don't know whose body part it is for a couple of lines and it leaves you hanging trying to kind of pick apart this knot of body that has well there's hero and villain all wrapped up into one and the only way that eventually the knot gets untangled is Beowulf grabs Grendel's arm impossibly tight so Grendel wants to run away and the only way he can do that is just just realise that if he's going to get away he's going to have his arm ripped off so he just pulls his own arm off basically and trying to escape from Beowulf and runs away leaving his arm behind and it's almost like the the construction of separate bodies has has fallen apart literally in in this this kind of ideological battle between insider and outsider and that's kind of disturbing when when you, when you're reading the poem and it's it's not a sort of heavily allegorical poem in the moment it's very viscerally gory and you really get a sense of bodies being torn apart and so if you're you're kind of introducing those ideas into it. It's not a theoretical thing. It's like it feels devastating that everything you, your entire sense of what is going on and where everyone stands is being torn apart, just as their bodies are being torn apart physically. Let's talk about the inclusion of the excerpts on the Quran, then, which there's a hundred ways in which this could have been insensitive or badly done or you know lots of different ways let's talk about how you approached it and why i think one reason why was kind of why not and it was that i had read some of the quran a while ago and i remember thinking then sort of how surprisingly beautiful and mystical and kind of rich a lot of the imagery was because you kind of 
when a lot of people stereotype and negatively represent the Quran, it makes it sound like all it is is just people talking about murdering infidels and being very angry all the time. And it doesn't really give you any sense of the kind of the intelligence or the the artistic brilliance or any of of those things that of the era and the area that produced it. So that's one thing that I wanted to kind of represent some of those strange corners of the Quran that don't get quoted because they're not exactly well. I think the reason they don't get quoted is that then they're not very easy to understand what they even mean. And people want to quote the things that very dramatically say, like, kill the non-believers, which, by the way, the Bible says probably more than the Quran. And so people want to find things like that. And you don't, you know, when you get you get verses in here, it's like, you know, God, God sometimes uses parables, for example, the mosquito. If you have faith, then you know what we're talking about. <laughs> something like that. And it's just, it's almost like a kind of, like a Cohen poem or something like that. It's a very Zen sort of, uh, like an image that doesn't doesn't ram any conclusion down your throat. It's just a sort of, sort of gem like philosophical riddle. And so that was that was something I naturally wanted to share, and was frustrated by the fact that the first thing everyone thinks when you say you want to use the Quran is that's insensitive. You're a racist. There's a problem with Islamophobia, which of course there is. I'll be honest, like the, the kind of heat and resistance I got there made me want to do it more because a big thing about what I was doing with the book is because I was writing about something genuinely traumatic that had really happened in real life that felt sort of like I, I needed to find something, a new way of writing and speaking that was kind of telling the truth in a more, in a higher level than I'd told the truth before. I guess and the the fact that the Quran is this text that a lot of people are very heated about in both positive and negative directions and there's a lot of controversy that swirls around it by invoking it in the book it kind of imports a bit of the same kind of drama and real danger that I felt at the time and that I continued to feel by sort of going back to it in poetry. And so if it was, if it was a dangerous and potentially offensive thing to do, then I can't pretend that that wasn't part of the allure as well. But I think the, the reason anyone would think that it would be offensive is that they, they would expect me to be doing something quite different with the pieces I was translating you know, people say like, "What well, are you afraid that people might accuse you of mischaracterizing the Quran?" And I'll say, like, if if you can find a single way that I've characterized the Quran, either positively or negatively, I'd be very pleased to hear it. Because the more I translated from it, the more confused I was by its message and sort of surprised by the the philosophical content of what it was saying, and also just some of the kind of the imagery and and facts as well like the tree in in hell that has fruit made of demons faces or it, you just get such a skewed and unfair picture of what the theology is as well because people always talk about the virgins that you get in paradise but n no one talks about the fact that in the quran it also says that there's an unlimited ginger ale fountain <laughs> so 
like that that's something that you know if you know that that's a, that's a completely different angle and a, and characterizes the faith and the culture in a completely different way and it's not any more accurate like i i would or i also think it'd be terribly dangerous to take that and use that to draw conclusions about islam but the point is that you can do that and in in a way everything i've written whether it's a translation or my own kind of cherry picking of bits of experience and assembling it into a collage it's kind of about how like it's impossible to make meaning out of anything whether it's retrospective experience or someone else's account of something or a text that you're translating and so you're left with this kind of interpretive act which creates as much noise as it does meaning and that's another reason that the quran is important because it's more than any other religious text it it has this concept of interpretation baked into it so the quran isn't just a standalone text you've got multiple layers of interpretation and then interpretations and glosses on those interpretations and so the central text of the quran which is what i was working on is this kind of this chessboard of pieces or this kind of highly contested very overdetermined text which i was very interested to sort of see what happened when you move the pieces around without having a political goal and really make it more about the actual content of the text and and not trying to kind of prove any point either way but sort of put the focus back onto what it actually says in a way that kind of exposes some of the sort of the interesting but not that dramatic corners of the text as well can i get you to read there's an early piece about a bee Yes. The bee. A sign will be apparent here to those who reason. God inspires the bee directly. Bee, build in the mountains. Build in trees and houses. Build in buildings. Feed on all fruits and follow in the paths and hollow ways trodden for you by the Lord. And I wanted to talk about... And that from idea. there, the bee's belly yeah, flows. Yeah, I think a, drink a lot of the time, especially with these these texts like Beowulf and the Quran, that they've been fully translated now. Both of them have like corpus database websites where you can look up every single word and you can see what you know twenty or thirty different people have translated it as. That work is done now, and so often a side effect of that is that you can end up kind of pigeonholing a text in the way that you decide to translate it. And what happens with Old English is that there are kind of three languages. So there's Old English and there's Modern English, but then there's like the words in Modern English that we've kind of agreed to make up to use to describe things in Beowulf that we don't have anymore. So Old English expresses a lot of things in it's a device called kenning, which is you, you take two nouns and kind of slam them together in a way that you can't do so easily now. Like Germans can do it a lot better. But for instance, the one people always give is in Beowulf, one of the words for the sea is Hronrad, which means the whale's road, which kind of, it sounds very poetic, but it also is, it feels quite functional in the way that you can kind of snap two words together a bit like lego and often when you're getting a translation in modern english 
people will put two words together like that in modern English as well because they want to kind of represent what's going on in the original. And sometimes that's good and sometimes it's bad because you kind of, you know, if if you're always talking about like the the warrior lords, the the bold princes, the the whatever, you're not really talking modern English. You're talking kind of pseudo-Germanic heroic English and so really if you're translating it into the language of our modern world it might be more appropriate to find a kind of more modern analogue or to try to avoid those kind of ruts that we fall into so in a lot of my Beowulf stuff I'll alternate between translating in sort of surprisingly modern words and also kind of making fun of that very kind of rigid translation of the kennings so sometimes you'll read a line of mine it'll be it'll sound very weird because i've basically just flipped some of the words and kept the line exactly the same or sometimes i'll introduce a word that sounds like really distractingly modern but it actually fits quite well like one of my favorite words that i put into beowulf is the word rebar and one of my favorite bits is in Beowulf, there's a before Grendel breaks in, like he smashes the doors of the hall really easily. But there's like ten lines before talking about how how rigidly reinforced the the doors are, and then Grendel just comes along and smashes them anyway. But it keeps talking about how it says two or three times the doors were reinforced with iron and steel or whatever. And so I love this this idea of rebar because it. It is exactly that thing. It's like a reinforcing skeletal structure that goes inside another structure and reinforces it, but it's also got re in it. So it's a kind of, it's got, it incorporates that doubling. And I think if you translate all of Beowulf to make it sound like Lord of the Rings, then you'll miss out on fun little things like that or sort of new ways of thinking about it. But that's that's more of a theory for if I was going to translate the whole of Beowulf but I haven't really applied that. I do it in little bits, like I'm talking there, just to show you that you can, and then I do other bits that are sort of very leaden and kind of translated word by word, as I was talking about. And it's more like, in this book, I've tried to keep that work of translation alive in the book, so it's a kind of... It should feel like everything's in flux constantly, and and the every word choice I make is a contingent one and I didn't necessarily need to choose what I did and if it's obvious in that then maybe it makes you start to think like in poetry especially like all word choices are contingent and we're constantly kind of making those choices to open up one avenue of meaning and close another down and the more you're you're aware of that the more kind of real world implications that has especially if you're talking about these very weighty kind of hot button political ideas as well this is a very obviously a very personal book about your response to the experience you had obviously there were people that died in these attacks as you mentioned earlier you you didn't see this at the time but obviously that would have become apparent and you you talk in the notes in the book about and indeed there is a a poem, abandoned notes towards a poem about one of the victims and you talk about how how you would go about or how obviously you don't want to go about representing the other victims of this attack. 
Yeah, I think the... I have a problem with a lot of poems, like, leaving aside the morality of kind of victimhood and that kind of thing. There's a school of poetry that is facilitated by the internet now where you're kind of... The poet is this sort of all-consuming predator who grazes through the internet looking for a quirky, interesting fact and then kind of feeds on it like a vampire to make a quirky, interesting poem and then... Post it on Instagram. Yeah, exactly, post it on Instagram and so the loop continues. And it's... um, I think that's a that creates a position of a lot of privilege and it often prevents poetry engaging socially with anything because, you know, poetry used to come out of social contexts where people were discussing with each other and people or people were writing letters to each other or there was you know it was it was everything other than that kind of solitary act of sort of creating this poem that's basically part of your self presentation on the internet and it, anyway i that that's something that i find annoying and to to me the worst example of that would be for me having decided to write about this terrorist attack in which i wasn't hurt at all to then sort of decide that and like an important part of writing the book would be to talk about the victims and then to think I'm going to go online now and look up details that met previously meant nothing to me and try and kind of milk some emotion out of that. And so the, the, the genuine emotion that did come from that was just a profound feeling of kind of disgust and guilt with myself about the whole project of the book for a while just feeling that the experience wasn't enough to to kind of have the the balls to sort of you know say that I had a right to to talk about it or to express anything in the face of the loss of someone's life which is kind of so above and beyond a lot of the kind of obscure linguistic tricks that I play in the book or the kind of kind of slightly bittersweet funny things that I notice because you know there are a bit there are poems in the book that kind of try to talk about how even when you're really terrified for your life the mundane kind of funny stuff doesn't stop happening and there's a lot of disjunction there and so in a way the light-hearted moments of that became horrible when you're feeling guilty for that so yeah that I wrote that poem because that was I I tried and thought what would it be like if I tried to write something that properly honored this person and then it became a sort of horrific, guilty feeling, and just, and I thought the only thing worse than going through with it and doing it would be to kind of not address that guilt. And so I hope that just by writing completely honestly, and it's called Abandoned Notes, and it genuinely is just the the word document that I hadn't finished, copied into the book. And in in a way, it's a bit different from a lot of the other stuff in the book because it doesn't pretend to be finished or have any kind of conclusion or anything. It's just this sort of record of, yeah, for better or worse, what my genuine thoughts are about this man who died, among others. And you just mentioned there about, you know, your own feelings of sort of disgust in some respects throughout the process of writing this book. Mm-hmm you know, fighting, I guess, with the very concept of doing it. And to round, you know, to round us off, it would obviously be, you know, often one here would ask a, you know, rather glib question about how, you know, 
working through this book has helped or something, which is nonsense. Um, what did you get out of writing it? Um, I don't know. I think it was more that I can't really imagine how I would have thought about any of it without having written it. It kind of was a natural thing that came out. Like, I started writing it only a couple of days after the incident had happened. And in that way, it was... Yeah, I guess it was just kind of my my thinking being set down on paper. And I don't know, I guess if, if there's been a benefit, it's that it's kind of reminded me to to try and cling on to as much kind of subtlety and awareness of complexity in a lot of emotive issues that come up in the news or in politics and that kind of thing. Because I remember, you know, even with sort of little video clips were finding their way out from where we had ended up on the night. And just the way they were talking about it, you could see already that it wasn't at all reflective of exactly what had happened. And you just think... You know, there are there are dozens and dozens of things like this I see every day that I don't... You just have to take at face value, otherwise you wouldn't have time to exist. But n- being on the inside of one of them shows that every single one of them is this sort of huge, you know, tornado of of meaning that's up for grabs and can be bent in whatever way you want. So it was kind of... I guess it was a healthy exercise in sort of picking a, a case study for that and pulling it apart and kind of showing showing what some of those influences are and how, just how complicated it is to say anything. But I don't know. I think that's that's probably been quite damaging for my next book because after writing a book that sort of challenges the concept of ever writing a poem about anything and ever making anything significant or you know, sincerely meaningful without it being hypocritical or or kind of philosophically undermined in all sorts of ways, then, you know, you can't really go back and write a poem about a, finding a flower in the forest or something, can you? <laughs> it would be a very strange flower. Can I get you to just finish it off with one more of your poems? Yeah. Um, perhaps a tall, thin man. Mm-hmm. A tall, thin man. I didn't see him in that imagistic way a poet in a poem sees things like a wheelbarrow or a discarded woman's shoe and captures them and their whole essence out of time. I saw him, lost him in the crowd, found him, looked away, and then looked back again to check that what I saw was what I thought it was. It was a tall, thin man a tall, thin man holding bundled cloth against his neck, a tall, thin man with wadded fabric held against his neck, soaked with blood-red blood who had found his way downstairs to cuts and jammers to shelter underground with an expression on his face I didn't recognise at first because, just as I did not perceive him in a singular or poetic way, neither did he perform his suffering according to convention but looked frightened in a way few actors would act when asked to portray fear, blank, withdrawn, and with a gait and posture of both stiff dignity and urgent shame, like one of those people you read about who, when they start to choke in public, hurry to the bathroom in embarrassment and die alone. I've been talking to Richard Osman. We've been talking about his book Rock, Paper, Scissors, 
which is out now from Picador Poetry. Richard, thank you very much for coming in and sharing it with us. Thanks for having me. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, edited by Sky Redman, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89up and hosted by Acast. If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe, rate us on iTunes, and even tell a friend. Thanks for listening.